Hi, welcome to Chatting to a Friend. I'm Katie Friend and in this podcast I'm chatting to incredible women about their life experiences and adventures as well as their thoughts on friendship, community, self-care, setting boundaries and how they keep healthy, happy and sane. That was amazing. God, that was the fastest hour ever. I was like, no way. (laughs) For 25 years, Rosie Aiello was in an abusive marriage. Why did she stay? How did she not know for such a long time? These are questions that we cover in this really, really important conversation. After 25 years, she and her then adult daughter escaped. They planned an escape and they left Lebanon and came back to the United States. Suffering from PTSD and an enormous amount of shock, they have re-engineered and reworked their lives. They've started the Love is Kind Network and are hoping to help millions and millions of women and children in the same situation. This is a hard conversation, an incredible story, but a hard conversation and one that is really worth listening to. All of us, perhaps at some time in our life, have been in a relationship that is not healthy, that is not kind, that is not compassionate, whether that is a partner or a parent. And it's so important to hear this conversation because it could help you, it could help somebody you love. And so I hope you get something out of this. Please let me know what you think. Thanks. Hi, Rosie. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm fabulous, Katie. I'm so glad to be here. Good. Thank you. Oh, I do love having an American on the show because nobody, no Brits ever say I'm fabulous. That's a great way to say hi, that you're doing well. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you're in San Diego and you have quite the story. And uh, I've sort of alluded to it in my introduction um, but please, would you just tell us your story and what it is that you, you know, how you've come to what you're doing now? Okay. Um, I, I love to share my story these days. Um, so I was in a highly abusive relationship, but I didn't know that. I, I, uh, I was working in Silicon Valley in corporate finance in California I got married to a Lebanese Christian man who was working in Saudi Arabia at the time. And so I left my family, my friends, and my really outstanding career to uh, move to the Middle East, where I, I moved first to Saudi Arabia, and then we moved to Lebanon a little bit later. But it was really funny as I was looking at my relationship, I just, you know, I was, I was a rising star in my company. I was, you know, I was doing things really well. You know, I'm smart. I can, was managing a team, managing my whole, one certain aspect of the entire company. And yet when it came to my marriage, all of a sudden I couldn't do anything right. And he would just get upset and uh, insult me and put me down. And and I just kept trying harder and harder. And I just said, well, I can, I can do this. And I kept trying to make it right. Then we moved to, uh, we had a daughter and she was born in Saudi Arabia. And then we moved to Lebanon where he's from. And things just, by then things were just getting worse and worse. 
And it wasn't until I moved, it wasn't until I, not we moved, but we took a vacation to California, which we did on a regular basis. It wasn't that we didn't. But this one particular time, I went to a bookstore and I picked up a book and it's called The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. And she and I are now very good friends, actually. And I remember going home back to Lebanon and I hid the book in paper bags and plastic bags and stuck behind a closet. And then when I wanted to read it, I would just take it out and go into the guest bathroom and lock the door and read it in the bathroom. And slowly I realized what my life really was. And on the good, good side was that I wasn't really crazy. And on the bad side, it was, it was devastating to learn that I was in this highly abusive relationship that I didn't know. I was married 18 years, Katie, before I even knew I was in an abusive relationship. And extraordinary. Yeah. It's because you don't have the vocabulary for it, right? And did you did people notice? Did people notice a change in you? Did they say anything? Did people that, you know, when you went to California, did did people comment or hint or anything? Well, it's such a great question. And the answer is no, nobody did. I mean, we put on, you know, a great show, right, for everybody. Not we, I did. And most women who've been in abusive relationships similar to mine, it's like, we should get the Academy Award for Best Actress because <laughs> nobody, nobody, that one friend, I have to say only one friend, in fact, she, she was, she's, she's American, but she lives in uh, England now. And she, she said she could see it, but nobody said anything to me. You know, like, what's going on, Rosie? Why, why are you changing? I just put on a front because, well, that's what you do. You, you just, you, you try to do the best you can with uh, in your relationship. And remember, the majority of the time I did had, I had no clue. So even if they told me, I, I don't know what I would have thought. I didn't know the words. I didn't, I never heard of of, of domestic violence. I'd never heard of domestic abuse. I never heard of, of verbal abuse or emotional abuse. I, or, you know, and it wasn't even until after I got back, which I'll get to in a minute, that I even heard of really narcissism and narcissist. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, these are just words you don't enter into. You don't think about, you don't go into a marriage thinking you're going to be traumatized or abused or put down or belittled or demeaned or an insult. You, you don't, you don't, expect that. But when it happens, you just think it's you because they make sure they remind you that it's you. Yeah. And why did you, just out of interest, why did you pick up the book? Had you started to have an inkling by that point or is it just so happened it was there? Well, here, this is interesting. This is a really good question because the book I actually picked up, the first book I actually picked up was Walking on Eggshells because that's how I felt. Mm. I felt that I was walking on eggshells and women who are in these relationships feel like they're walking on eggshells. They're always in fear. And that book, as it turns out, was really about borderline personality disorder, which I don't think he has or which he is. It doesn't, he didn't follow that. But that book, that book had a, had a bibliography uh, and that's where I found the verbally abusive relationship by Patricia Evans. Mm -hmm. And so then you took it back and you sneaked a read of it when you could. And, and what started to happen for you? It took me a long time to read the book because I was just crying like, this cannot be my life. Like this cannot be my life. I just, I went into denial and it's like, 
I can't, I couldn't accept what I was reading, even though it could have been my autobiography. And I just kept working on the relationship. The other thing that was complicating uh, factors, one is I was living in the Middle East and in Lebanon, as well as, you know, most of the countries in the Middle, in the Middle Eastern countries, is that custody automatically goes to the father. There's no custody battle. I don't know how it is in, in the rest of Europe or in England, but in the United States or in California, is that you can, you go to court to see who gets custody. Sometimes it's joint custody. Sometimes it's, you know, the father, sometimes it's the mother. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not like that in the Middle East. It's when the child is like zero to seven, she can, the child can be with the mother, but from seven till the time they turn major at 18, it's the father has custody. That's just, that's just the way it is. So there was nothing I would ever do to jeopardize losing my daughter. Mm. So I, even after I found out after those 18 years, I stayed for another, what was it? Seven years, six, seven years before I could get out you know, without fear of losing her. Mm. And then there was a catalyst. There was a very yes. major catalyst and it became, it came from your daughter, I understand. Yes, it, it, it did. Um, she, by then, she was a junior at the university. It was the, the, university, the American University of Beirut in Lebanon. And she was living with us at the time. She was able to live on campus the first year, but the second year, her father made her come back. And she just said, you've got to get me away from my abusive father. And I, I, I had told her earlier, you know, like when she was 16, when I read the book, I go, look, you know, what's happening is that your father's abusive. And I didn't know that. Mm. Um, and I said, you know, when you're ready to leave, just tell me, oh, <laughs> you right. know? Yeah. which was, which was a big thing to tell a child I'm realizing later, but I didn't think of it then. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so, so she's 20 She's 20 years old and she's coming to me. And I said, okay, so within four months, I planned the escape of our lives. Wow. And I know you've written, you are writing or you have written the book? We're, we're writing. You're writing. We're writing. And, and remind yeah, us the name. Uh, we're writing a memoir called 11 Hours to Freedom. And without giving too much away, so we still want to buy the book, can you give us a, a can you talk us through what you did? Um, yeah. So I will tell you, uh, you know, I wrote a draft for the chapter, you know, she'll probably be split up and it was like 40 pages of the details of how I planned this escape. Mm. It's just like, and to some, when I think about it, it's like, I don't know how I did. I think God and the angels were really helping me. (laughs) Um, but I immediately went into gear of, um, starting to, uh, take things from the home, which, which really wasn't much. The first things I took were the photo albums of my, my daughter. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That's, that was more important than anything, you know. <laughs> and, and then I just took a few, you know, clothes and just some knickknacks and things like that. And I had to pack them up. And what I did, just to give you a perspective on this, which people probably won't get in the book, so it's pretty cool but people can actually hear this, mm. is that in Lebanon, we were, on, we were in like a condominium or a flat apartment building, how you want to describe it. And we were like on the third and fourth floors and we had an elevator that went to each floor. It was just, it was just a two story place. Well, there was huge electricity um, uh, shortages and outages in Lebanon. 
So when I packed a box, which I did in the guest bedroom, again, I locked the door Mm. and did that. I got boxes from stores and dragged that up. And my husband was somebody who worked pretty much 24-7 at home. Mm, Wow. So I'm packing up and then I have to make sure there's electricity so I can take the box down and put it in the car. And then when I would put, you know, get a couple boxes in the car and we had a small building, so I had to make sure that the neighbors weren't looking or they didn't see me when, when I was taking things out. Of course, when you're doing something in secret, you feel guilty, even yeah. though there's nothing to feel guilty about. But I was always like, oh, what are you, what, what's, what are you doing with that box? But they would never ask me that, but I didn't think that way. Yeah. Right? I was like, and then I would get my, and then I took um, a box or two down to a friend. Now, prior to this, I just want to tell you that when I read that book, you know, after 18 years of marriage, then I told three people, my mm-hmm. brother and my two best friends, in the United States, mm-hmm. that when I was planning the escape, I, I got uh, two more of my friends who lived in Lebanon. They were both Americans um, who, who helped me because I needed help. I needed somebody to be able to help me plan the shipment. I needed somebody to help me store the boxes. And I fortunately had a dear friend who had a huge house. So then I would drive the boxes down there. Now it was kind of my car, but he also used my car. Mm. So I had to make sure he didn't use my car. So I did that for four months. Wow. Uh, and we had live in help. I, I don't know how I, how the live in help who went upstairs and, and cleaned the bathrooms. I don't know how I hid it from her. I, I'm trying to remember. And I just like, it's just a miracle that I got all this stuff done. Mm. And then, so you managed to get stuff to your friend and organize a shipment and then get yourselves out. Yes. So then we got ourselves up. So we went to, as a family, we would go to the United States every summer so I could visit my family and friends. And he had friends here. We met at UC Berkeley. Mm. That's where we met. So he had friends here too. So uh, the day arrived when the taxi came and I had my suitcases and my daughter was already in the back seat and I got into the back seat of the taxi and my husband was in the front seat. (laughs) So... So I knew that three of us were going there, but only one was coming back. Oh, my word. So Lebanon um, does not have any direct flights to the United States. So we always flew, usually, we usually flew somewhere in Europe, usually to Paris. So we flew to Paris. We spent a few days in Paris. And then we took the 11-hour flight from, from Paris to San Francisco. And on that flight... I mean, I still was afraid, you know, you know, if I breathe wrong, he was going to yell at me. I was so afraid of, of, of the plan being spoiled, but it was like, I didn't think like, look, Rosie, you know, you're on the flight. He can't really do anything, but he could have, he could have made a scene. He could, I don't know what he could have done, but mm. I was still very nervous. Oh, I'm not and when surprised. we, when we, my brother and I had been working together on the plan because I would say on a scale of one to 10. My, my stress was probably like 110 yeah. because when you get like this and I can explain a little bit more later, mm. you're when, when there's so much stress and you're putting out so much cortisol, your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that helps you plan, helps you make decisions is literally non-functioning. Yeah. Um, I just had a lot of advanced skills. So I was able to do a lot of the planning. 
So my brother was going to pick us up at the airport and I knew exactly where he was going to be once the, the gates opened. And I will share another little part just because this is so fun and I don't really usually get to do this. Oh, fun. I'm Good. sure it'll be in the, in the, in the, in the book, but Normally, when we go to the United States, I would have one suitcase and I would pack another one inside and we I'd shop for the whole year clothes and everything. And then I'd come back with two suitcases. Mm. This was the only time ever in 20, uh, almost 25 years that I went to the United States with two suitcases full Mm. because I was packing up my stuff. Um, So we so we get chosen because we're from Lebanon to have our suitcases checked. You know, and they open them up and we don't always do that in the United States, but um, depends on where you are. So now we are going, my heart's beating. It's like, I'm going, oh my God, this whole plan's going to fail. You know, I just thought that was what was going is like, he's going to see something in the suitcase and he's going to say, well, why is that there? And, you know, I, I mean, all these things are going into my head at that moment, still not thinking that I'm in my own country. I'm safe. I didn't think I was safe. And that would actually take quite a few years before I mm. felt that. So, uh, and my daughter, oh, I could have just killed her. She had like, like, you know, her whole lifetime supply of her, of her DVDs and CDs. And <laughs> normally she would take like a couple. And it's like, oh my God, if he sees that, he's going to say, well, why do you have all that? I mean, all these things are going on, but mm. anyway, we managed, we managed and, um, we distracted him. I it just, again, it's a miracle. Let me just tell you, it was a miracle. We zipped up our, you know, closed our suitcases. We walked to the gates. I saw my brother and my daughter and I walked over to him, my brother, and parked our carts or trolleys, I think you call it in Europe, mm-hmm. maybe. And I was so terrified of my husband that I had my brother walk over to him and just, and tell him, Rosie's been upset and she needs some time away. I couldn't even have my brother say she's leaving you. It, yeah. That took a lot of therapy for me to be able to even get there. And there were some other things that happened. But basically, we, my brother came back. We turned our backs. And the three of us walked out of the airport, leaving him completely stunned oh. in the middle of a busy airport. Wow. And what did, did he try to follow you? Did he try to find you? Yes. And there's a whole story. I mean, the, you know, on the way up, he started calling, called my phone because we had cell phones. He called my cell phone. I didn't answer. He called my daughters. She didn't answer. He called my brothers. He didn't answer. He called my sister-in-law who was home and she answered it. So, you know, so she, she told us, you know, he got through to somebody and then I'll never forget that day either because my brother says, you need a new phone. And so it's, it's, it's a long flight, right? You know, when you're traveling from Paris to San Francisco, mm. I, and all the anxiety, it, it was like, you know, 20 hours. And so we went immediately to the uh, store to buy a new phone and they were super busy. So I was dead tired, but I was like four hours at store to get a new phone number. So mm. then he could, so I could have, be able to connect with other people and, yeah. um, and not be, and not answer my other phone. And on top of being jet lagged and stressed, I mean, where are you, emotional at this stage where you crying or just uh, numb or how how if someone was looking at you would they have guessed that you were dealing with this major major trauma no no one would have noticed I mean I had my composure the whole time in the air uh, in the airplane you know I remember a point where my daughter and I looked at each other like we knew what was coming down and he didn't 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in the store, I was just fatigued beyond belief, but yeah. no, I, I was, it was more numb and because I was on such a survival mode, mm-hmm. when you're in survival mode, you just, you behave and react a lot differently than you do under normal stress or, you know, or just our normal behavior. And he presumably eventually went back to Lebanon without you realizing at that stage that you weren't coming back. Yeah, he, he well, you know, there was a lot of things that, that happened after that, um, mm. which I, I, I won't go into, but we did um, contact, you know, I, you know, I got, a, I hired a lawyer within the first three days I was there. We had triaged them before I had arrived. So I hired a lawyer. Um, because I was not yet a resident of California, I had to do what's called separation. So I went into action immediately. My brother was with me the entire time. This is not something you can really do by yourself. I know some women do, but it's very hard. I mean, it takes so much. Um, I didn't feel it then. People say it later, but you know, it just takes so much courage to do this. But you you do it when you're you're desperate and. I think one thing I, I do want to share is during, especially especially during those for those four months when I was planning and I was riddled with guilt. You know, you're you're under somebody's nose. You're planning an escape. It's it's creepy, and I mm. just kept telling myself, and I knew nothing about personal development. I knew nothing about uh, mantras. I knew none of this. Zero. Mm. Um, I but I came up, but I told myself that my daughter and I deserve a happy and joyful life, that I have one life to live. I don't have to be a martyr and I'm going to live this life. And I must have said that like a hundred times a day to just keep myself going and not Mm. succumb to the guilt. Um, But up to, I mean, I kept trying to make that marriage work almost to the very end. (laughs) Crazy as it sounds. I mean, it's just like, you just keep hoping that and can you tell me what, uh, for those who may not know, what what is a narcissist and what is it that makes it so hard for even the person in the relationship to understand what they're really like? Yeah, you know, this is a great question. And um, the problem is that they're like, even though I said he doesn't have borderline personality, it's not like he had a dual personality, but this is how narcissists appear in the world. They will appear as the funniest guy. And, and there are women who are narcissists. I'm just going to talk it from my point of view and my, mm. my experience. But they're the funniest. They're the most entertaining. They're charismatic. They're fun. They're funny. They're smart. And of course, and that's the part that you're attracted to. So there's Mm. all these great, great parts to this guy, you know? I mean, we had a lot of values in common. Just, it just, he was like, you know, not now, but at the time he was like the greatest guy had ever met. And he was really fun. And, And then there was another side and it was literally, Katie, like a flip of a switch. And you never knew when it was going to happen. And, and, he would just insult me and, and say, he would tell me for decades, you know, you're, I know you love your daughter, but you're a horrible mother. He would tell both of us, don't smile. You don't have a pretty smile. Mm. He would, uh, would get on my case. If I tried to get out, leave the house to leave the house, to go visit friends. He made it very difficult for me to have any kind of outside relationships. And this is what they do. They, they isolate. 
It's a very mm-hmm. common practice. And it seems like it's like, oh, I miss you. And I really want you to be with me. It kind of sounds like it's, it's kind of convoluted and it's mm-hmm. manipulative, but you don't see it then. And so one time, just as an example, he said, um, you know, well, I don't like the way you fold your, sh- my, my shirts. Can you fold them this way? He didn't say it that nicely, but so I folded them the, exactly the way he wanted them. I had him organized and everything else. And then one day out of the blue, he opens the cabinet door and just grabs them all and just throws them onto the floor and screams, you don't know how to fold my shirts right. And it's, it's like this, they, they set a goal for you. And remember, you know, I, I know how to reach goals, right. From my business, mm-hmm. and most of the women I work with, and, you know, I have a podcast too. They, they are very smart women, but you're just, you're just reduced to nothing. It's like, yeah. it's like, I got the goal. What, what do you mean? But they keep changing, like just about you have it, or you're about to reach it then they change the goal. So you're always off-centered. You're, 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 just, you're unsure of yourself. They start to challenge your, your, your memory. They tell you, well, I have a better memory. So many things. So I give this analogy. Mm. It's like, you know, and you can even do it. I'm going to, you know, it's like, you know, you take like your left hand and, you know, just put it up and have it perpendicular to your body. And then it's like, and then take your other, your right hand, and you're not going to touch your hands yet, but they're facing each other. And so the left hand is all the great stuff. I mean, this guy is so great. You just, you know, he takes you on great vacations. He buys you wonderful gifts. Sometimes this can be called love bombing when they overdo it, which he did for me. Oh, let's go to Paris, you know, when I was still living in the United States. Yeah. And, and then you have the right side, and that's where he blows up at you. He threatens you. He insults you. He belittles you. He treats you like a child. No matter what you do, it's not right. Now put those hands together. So you know, all the fingers are touching each other. Yeah, okay? I'm doing that. All right. So now, you know, that shows the two parts of him. Now bring your fingers down like you're going to do a prayer position and your fingers are, are facing the floor. Mm-hmm. So now you've got the whole person. Now try to pull your hand apart. Yeah with your fingers down. You can't pull it apart. And that's what it's like being with a narcissist. They have this great side that you're attracted to and they have this horrible side. So if you want the great side, you are going to get this horrible side Mm. until you get destroyed. And that's what happens. And what do you tell yourself? Like you say you didn't know for 18 years, but what do you, what did you tell yourself? Were there excuses for his behavior? Were there well, maybe I just hadn't understood properly or, you know, what, how does that, how do you reconcile it? Oh, this is such a great question, Katie, because this is one of the main things I teach is that, yes, we make excuses for their behavior. And now I just say, if you're making excuses for anybody's behavior, it's not a small red flag. It's a huge red flag. And we do that, I think, because we're trying to figure it out. We're, we're just, we, it's really hard to understand the brain of a, of a narcissist, somebody who has a pathological behavior because they, they don't function like normal people, but you don't know that mm. you think they're normal. You know, another analogy uh, is, I, I assume you have it there too, is like talking to the wall, right? It's like, the wall can't hear you. The wall has no empathy. The wall has no compassion. Mm. The wall can't understand you. It's literally, it's literally like that. 
So I ra- I tried to make because because he was you know that there's that left side there's that great side mm. there's that smart side so well okay well maybe I did forget well maybe I can do better and he kept saying you know you know just do better and, and it'll be okay I was constantly apologizing for my behavior he never ever ever apologized mm. for his behavior not even when I asked him you know after we left can you just please apologize to your daughter? Yeah. Because then that would be admitting he did something wrong. So that is what happens. We do make excuses to try to rationalize our staying in that relationship to, to think that, well, we can, we can, we can make it better. Yeah. We meaning the women yeah. and we, and we cannot, you cannot change another human being and you're in a, a lose-lose situation with somebody who is like that. And could you see it affecting your daughter? I mean, you know, obviously after the, the 18 years and you had this sort of realization, but could you see how it had affected her and her life and her personality? Yes. You know, and, and this is, this is what's, what's heartbreaking for me because I didn't know it for a long mm. time, but when, when she was little, um, maybe seven, eight, nine, that, that time period. And I just had the one daughter, we'd be, the three of us would be sitting down for dinner and he'd be getting on my case and she would say, Papa, you know, stop saying that to mama. That's not nice. And he would call her mama's little lawyer. And I felt like crap. Mm. I mean, I didn't speak up for myself and I had to have my, my child defend me. But I also knew that if I said anything as a reply to him, he would scream and things would get worse. She didn't know that, but that's how it was. So as she came, turned into adolescence, what do kids do when they become adolescents? You know, it's the time of separating and, and parents are horrible and you don't know anything and get off my case. You know, yeah. they're just, and they, they keep coming back and like, you know, they're all over the place. Well, he didn't like that, mm. right? When she was starting to come into her own. So he started to insult her, put her down. You know, he never hit her, um, but he never gave her her space. He would just She'd be in a room with the door closed, uh, studying, and he would just open it up. He wouldn't knock. Um, he would, you know, just scream at her. She's not studying enough. Uh, it, it was, it was very horrible, and I just felt helpless. Mm. I felt stuck because I, I, I just again, this is the survival that I chose. There's some women who scream and fight and kick and. And defend. I, 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 that was just not my personality because yeah. I knew his personality, and I just knew if I said something, uh, um, it would we would both lose. So I took a lot of crap from him alone, you know, as mm. he would complain about his daughter, and I would get it from her, you know. And I was trying to be the peacemaker. This is another role women in these relationships do. We try to be the peacemaker, and of course, you know, you just get disintegrated trying to do that. But yeah, I could see it. And you've mentioned a couple of times about, you know, taking years to process it. I mean, that's hardly surprising. There was a horrendously long time to be in that sort of abusive relationship. Did you, so I'd like you to tell me a little bit about the sort of, you know, the diagnosis that you got when you got back and how you are recovering because I assume that these sort of things are ongoing and is there any part of you that still feels how you felt on occasion you know are you triggered still to go oh well I'm, oh, I shouldn't have done that or I'm, I'm really sorry 
Is that, can you talk me through that? Yeah, when we, uh, when we arrived, um, we were both diagnosed with um, PTSD and depression. My daughter was diagnosed with complex PTSD. Complex PTSD basically means you, 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 you were traumatized from a child. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just more ingrained. It's deeper. And, um, and of course, I never, the only time I'd heard of PTSD was in relationship to a veterans coming from, from combat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how, right. And, um, and that's, and that's how, how it is when you are in these relationships, you're living in terror every single day. I felt like I was in my own personalized terrorist camp. Mm. And, and so when I first arrived, uh, part of it is you're on super high alert. You're in super high alert because you're in such a state of fear. Mm. So when I first arrived and I saw a car on the street that looked like his, I would just, I would spin out. I would end up, you know, in bed for, for days in a fetal position crying mm. just from seeing the car. If I saw his handwriting, I would, I would freak out. Anything that related to him, um, he discovered, we tried to hide where we were and um, all the, um, through the divorce papers and, you know, the process, we had redacted or blackened out our addresses. I don't know, but he probably paid somebody. I, I don't know. He found our address and started sending quote unquote gifts mm-hmm. that traumatized us both. So we were in a, I, I was just, you know, my head was just spinning. I was, we were still kind and my daughter and I started to trigger each other because we were, it's like when you're, you're in that environment, you, you pick up bad habits, right? Mm. So it was, it was just horrible, you know, and just uh, what we were doing and what was happening to our brain and how we were reacting. Uh, my daughter would disassociate. She would just like almost, it seems like she's passing out, but the, the stress, oh, it's not really the stress, but the memories were so traumatic for her. She, she couldn't handle them. So she would just like, just kind of pass out, but mm. it's, it's a disassociated state. Yeah. And of course, so I had to deal with her and my own trauma and we both got therapist and, um, we had a lot of, you know, deep therapy. Um, there's all different kinds. I've, I've done a lot of therapy, some by therapists, some, some by just other, uh, healers and things like that. I figured if it doesn't hurt me, (laughs) I'm going to try it kind of thing. Um, uh, a very good therapy uh, for women who've, uh, who've been into it is called EMDR. Um, it was it was developed by um, Vanderkolk. I think he's um, don't quote me a Belgian. You know, it's about the the every memory is uh, in, in your cells, in your body, mm. in your cells. So it's eye movement deactivation and resensitization, so that. Um, it's just, it's just a very effective technique where you don't always have to go deep into the memory and recall what it is, but it helps to get it out of your body. So while the trauma and the things happened, you know, you're healing, you kind of mentioned this and all, you know, is when you don't get triggered. Right. So the bigger, you know, the, when you have a trigger and you don't react to the trigger, then you're pretty much healed. So I'm pretty much at that state every now and then something will come up and it'll be more of a blip. Whereas before I might've been out for, for a few weeks, wow. you know, um, now it's pretty much of a, of a blip, but it still does happen. Mm. 
and I'm with the most fabulous guy. So I, I, I feel so blessed. I, you know, I have found the love of my life oh. and what I call the, the kind love of my life. Yeah. And which is something, um, you know, I help other women find their kind of their kind love of life. Um, and he'll do something, just nothing, nothing. He'll, he'll, um, well, I'll just tell you a story because it just to sh- so people see how this trauma manifests. So one time, this is when we were early dating and, um, I was going to the grocery store and I was going to pick up some stuff and he goes, well, I, and so I called him, do you want anything? He goes, well, oh, maybe some bananas and, you know, and maybe some other fruit. So I went to the fruit section of the store and I, stared at the fruit for probably 15 minutes in a total state of of being traumatized because my, you know, my ex-husband had screamed at me so many times for buying the wrong fruit, Mm. for buying fruit that wasn't uh, sweet or whatever, you know, I was blamed as fruit wasn't sweet or whatever. So I was so afraid that this guy, my, my new guy was going to yell at me, although he had never, ever, ever done that, yeah. but it doesn't matter. Do you see? That's mm, just an example how, yeah. how, how my hat goes in my mind. So when I went back and I told him about it, he kind of like looked at me and cocked his head. Like, why would anybody get upset about that? It's like, yeah. he couldn't understand, but this is how it manifests all the time. So fortunately I'm well on my healing path, but new things come up and your life's a journey. And so I'm, I'm constantly learning. And that's why I feel so privileged to help women move forward in their lives after these kinds of relationships that really suck your soul. Yeah. So tell me about that. You have pledged to help 1 million women and children. Is that correct? And that's a massively impressive goal. Tell me about that. Well, Katie, there's, there's actually a mistake. I've oh. actually amped it up to a hundred million <gasps> women. So it doesn't mean, you know, my goal is to impact and inspire a hundred million women to release the shackles of abuse. And, and it's, when I say the shackles of abuse, it's not just the physical abuse. That truly is the easy part. It's when you leave that you now have to really work on creating your own freedom. Mm -hmm. And that's how I help women, but to help them not only release the shackles of abuse, but to learn that they deserve to be treated with kindness and to realize that it starts by being kind to their, to themselves. Mm. And, um, like having this podcast and your group of people hearing it, my podcast, um, the work I do, it's just to the ripple effect, because what I know for sure is that when women do reclaim their voice, their value, their confidence and courage. They can create a productive, prosperous, and joyful life that they deserve. I believe that down to my baby toes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I quite agree. I couldn't agree more. And I've listened to a few of your episodes, your podcast episodes, and it's really, really powerful stuff. I mean, I couldn't listen to more than a couple at a time because it's just, you know, it's very uh interesting but it's it's quite intense I found it to listen to excellent by the way and I loved it and I love the the I love the fact that it's sometimes you it's sometimes sunny it's sometimes both of you together and you have obviously this very natural relationship which you would hope um uh but I particularly loved um and I'd really like you to expand a little bit on the the sort of the self-care and boundaries because it's they're sort of buzzwords these days but it's something that I've learned about over the last year that doesn't just mean 
having a bubble bath. Although that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Tell just a little yes. bit more about the, what that actually means. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you asking that because the way I teach and uh, the way I um, talk about self-care and self-kindness is uh, really goes to, to me, being kind takes courage. It takes courage to to really know your values, what's important to you. And that's sort of the foundation of everything. Mm. And so if it's not to tell people, well, uh, you know, I can't, you know, if I'm being kind, I'm just going to be, you know, I, so many people are going to walk over me. It's exactly the opposite of that. So taking care of yourself means setting healthy boundaries, knowing when to say no, knowing that if you're being mistreated, that you have the right to walk away, to, to speak up, to whatever the appropriate action is at the time. That's being kind to yourself. Self-care encompasses all of that. It's asking for what you want. Hmm. When you've lost your voice in these kinds of relationships, you feel like you don't deserve anything. Just when I tell women you deserve to be treated with kindness, it's like they kind of like step back and think, whoa, it's, it's, I really, you know, that's that kind of the reaction. Yeah. Cause this has almost been a sort of a, a brainwashing in a way. It, it definitely, it definitely a brainwashing. Right. And, and to, to now they need to learn to nurture themselves. And part of it is, is taking that bubble bath it is, is, but it's also um, getting out in nature. It's also setting those, knowing those boundaries. It's also speaking up. Mm. Like, you know, I, when you, if you don't speak up when something is bothering you and you just say, well, it doesn't matter. It's okay. You know, you keep giving in. Yeah. So when you give in, you give up a part of you. Yeah. And that is so critical. And then you just get chipped away and it gets chipped away and you get chipped away. But the thing is, is that it's your responsibility to speak up. Yes. That's, that's actually very um, pertinent. What's the word I'm trying to look for? That is very, it's kind of scary. I think sometimes to think that because I think potentially a lot in that sort of relationship that you if and when you do realize, you can say, well, it's all their fault. And then that you sort of, of course, it is largely their their personality that has uh, allowed for this to happen. But you have to take responsibility, I assume. You have to say, I need more than this. I deserve more than this. That's the responsibility yeah. I'm talking about. Exactly, Kate. I I don't have to put up with this. And and when I say speak up, it's, it's not, you know, I would um, always... Rule number one, if you're still in that relationship, is to is for your own safety and the safety of your mm. children. And you have to determine what yes. that means. But like you said, it's just like, you know, taking care of myself is not staying in a toxic relationship. Taking care of myself is surrounding with, with healthy people, right? Mm -hmm. And where can people go? What, what, what do you... You know, there is the getting out part and we don't want to necessarily go into it because people will hopefully be listening to this all over the world. But there there must be things that people can do, that women can do to start the process. 
Yes, if they're planning to to get out, and there's lots of organizations, I would just say Google for your local area of domestic violence or domestic abuse. But um, I was able to plan it. I did it in four months. And I would always recommend that you plan ahead of time, Mm. making copies of your documents, uh, start taking money. You know, they're usually, I have an MBA in finance, Mm. an MBA in finance, and I was financially abused. And what does that mean when you say financially abused? Well, in the, I, so two examples. One, he controlled all the money. I lived overseas, so he all the money. So he would give me an allocation for, um, for for the food and for some basic shopping. Um, I, I didn't have a, a, an account in my own name. I worked for his company, but he decided after I don't know, I don't know decades or whatever, I could finally get paid. And when I finally got paid, he decided what to use with, you know, what, what I would use, how I would use that money. He decided on my, you know, so that I owned a house with, um, in my own name in the United States. When we came one, one summer, he coerced me, uh, to put him on the quick claim deed, you know, to take ownership, uh, right before we sold it. Oh my goodness. So he, you know, house I'd owned for decades, I handed it over to him. I mean, it's just like, you, know, you think, I can say, well, Rosie, how can you be so stupid? Well, that's what happens when you're in a relationship like that where you've yeah. lost your entire power. And you talked earlier about um, sort of the prefrontal cortex and the overload of cortisol and stuff. How does that, you sort of touched briefly on how it affects you, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, this is another thing why it's so important is that people will, People would say to me, it was like, well, why didn't you leave earlier? Well, besides my daughter, there's a lot of, your brain has just been turned into spaghetti. So I want women to understand that there's a, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why you, you don't leave, even though you want to leave and why it's so hard be, because of, of the rewiring of your brain. Mm. And what happens is that we are in such a fight or flight freeze, which is the the lower part of your brain. This is the the primitive part of your brain that just keeps firing off automatically. And when you're in that that um, mode, the, the the body is not meant to be in the fight or flight freeze all the time. Mm. Like if a tiger is running after you, you get up and you start running, or you get into safety or, or something. When you're in a home where you're being terrorized all the time and you can't go anywhere, there's no place for that adrenaline and the other hormones that are released to be, to be released. So it builds up in your body. Mm-hmm. Besides, and then, and then on top of that, you have the cortisol, which is also built up from the stress. Mm-hmm. So you have all these, you have chemicals, a chemical overload. And then the, the nurturing part, the fun part, the enjoyable part that will produce some positive hormones, there's like, there's no room for it because you're in such distress 24 seven. Yeah. So this blocks, it blocks your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain, the, the, it's the newer part of the brain that helps you under, you know, to think, to plan, to be logical. All that is burnt. So when they tell you, oh, you, you can't remember anything. You can't, you're not logical. Well, this is probably the reason why, why you think you're in a fog. Lots of times they'll, they'll say, I just feel like I'm in a fog. Like my head's just full of cotton and I just can't think. I mean, I, I have so many stories where I just, you know, it was just hard to open a door sometimes. Mm. 
but um, that's what happens and you can't make these decisions. And that's why it's so hard for women to leave and why they can't, why it's extremely hard to leave by yourself. You need an outside brain to just hold you and guide you and help you along. That's if you're still in it, but it's still happy. You know, you have recovery time too, before, before you can, um, start getting your brain back <laughs> but it comes back it does oh, and you're, you deserve it you deserve to have your brain come back and have your life back and it, and it can be done yeah well, it's, uh, it sounds like it you're a shining example of exactly that so um we can find you on uh, the love is kind network.com correct and that's how and you have courses and your amazing uh help for women um, you said earlier, very briefly, actually, that it's not just men that perpetrate this sort of behavior, m- majority. But yeah. are there are there men uh, that are trying to escape this sort of abuse as well that you've come across or not? Um, I'm sure there are. I, I, I know of, of a few because it's, it's not in my bailiwick. But I mean, I just I was just having a, a discussion with a woman yesterday. Her her mother was a narcissist. Mm. Um, so you, you have, you've had all these combinations, yeah. but, um, and, and, and this is what, this is why we need to break the, ha- break the, the pattern. Mm. So it doesn't continue. Uh, the, all of these things that we're doing just, are just band-aids as we're keeping the, the, um, medical, the psychology industry, uh, very, very busy because mm. of this. And it's going to be, it's going to take generations for men to start to wake up uh, because it, it's just passed on from one family member to the next. If the child is that what it is? It's a it's a sort of a, a passing on. Yes, absolutely, a hundred percent. Like sexual abuse in the in the workplace doesn't start in the workplace. It starts in the home, mm. and that's part of my mission with the Love Is Kind movement is to the ultimate goal, right? Is to create kinder, intimate relationships. So that creates kinder families. That creates a kinder kinder communities in a kinder world. That's, mm-hmm. that's when we're going to see the shift and it's going to take a lot of work, but he, I'm here to help these women get back on their feet, create their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they may look great on the outside. They may be having a great job, but inside they're, they're feeling small and insignificant and like a fraud and like, I'm not enough. I'm not lovable. These are words I hear uh, almost every single day. It's very sad to hear that, but it actually made me think of one of the questions I wanted to ask you. How can people support women that they, sometimes you can see it happening. Other times, as you say, people just don't notice. How can you support somebody who is, you think might need your help? Uh, I appreciate you asking that because most family and friends who are well-intentioned um, um, don't have the skill and they'll mm-hmm. just use their own personal opinion, especially when it comes to healing. So if they're still inside, you know, they still haven't left and you can see it, uh, I would uh, just forward them information that you have gleaned and just say, you know, this might be helpful I want to make sure you're safe. Uh, something that um, gives them an idea because they'll be on the defensive 
they'll defend mm. the guy. Like I, I, I would have, if somebody came to me, especially before I knew I, I would just, cause I don't want to break up my marriage, right? You're, you're married yeah. for life kind of thing. So we have to be extremely sensitive to them and they leave when they can leave. Right. So yeah. I, I, I knew I was miserable for decades. I didn't know why, because I didn't have the vocabulary, um, the, teach them the vocabulary, Get, but don't do it yourself for um, PDFs and documents and things. Just, mm. just, just do like that. If they're already out, then the worst thing is, well, why did you stay so long? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, I, I can't tell you. Everybody asked me that. First is like, why did you leave? The second question is, why did you stay so long? Yeah. Um, but it's just like giving them, you know, how can I support you? What, what do you need? They may not know. Again, give them professional resources. Yeah. Professional resources or somebody like me who, who's been through it, who knows, refer them to like my podcast, the Vulnerable to Valuable podcast. And there's others. I'm Obviously, I'm not the only one. There are plenty out there. It's getting that information uh, and not making judgment on them and not telling, not ever telling them what to do. Like, and, yeah. and not saying, oh, he's such a jerk. Don't put, don't, don't insult the man that she was married to or mm. if it's vice versa. Yeah. And pres- uh, yeah, uh, not, not enabling, but not also n- not judging as you say. Right. And so, yeah, hard listening, listening can be one of the hardest things to do. I think in, in any yeah. situation, right. Similar. Active listening, just listening to them, just say, you know what, I'm, I'm here for you. Um, whenever, because it's really hard to listen and not put your own opinion in there, but that's what you need to do. And as I understand it, you know, as you're saying, these men mostly on the outside are the life and soul and everybody loves them and they're great fun. And so there, there must be part of people's brains going, wow, really? Is he really like that behind closed doors? You know, that, so that's sort of really holding the space for that person and trusting that they are not making this up. Yeah. And, and to that, to that point is just to say, I believe you, if they come to you and say it, it, those words, I believe you will is, is worth, you know, worth everything to that person. Right. Oh, Rosie, I could keep talking to you forever and a day. Um, so let's go through social media. Where can we find you? Um, I'm on social media. I'm the, the love is kind network as our, uh, as our page, Rosie Aiello, my name, um, the love is kind women's circle. It's a private group where it's safe. And I Mm -hmm. uh, do Facebook lives there. I'm on LinkedIn at Rosie Aiello. (laughs) I'm on Twitter. Uh, we have the, um, Rosie Aiello love is kind tweet. I'm and let's see, LinkedIn, Instagram again, under my name. And of course, the podcast, which is Vulnerable to Valuable. Vulnerable to Valuable, and yes. I will put all this in the show notes so that we've got all the right spellings and the right yes tags or whatever one calls them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Handles. Who knows? <laughs> I'm far too middle-aged to know the actual vocabulary for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thank you, Rosie. And I applaud you and congratulate you on, on taking a very, very difficult situation and turning it around to help other people, specifically women and children in that position. It's extremely admirable. Well, thank you so much. Um, I went and I would just end it with, you know, you, your listener deserve to be treated with kindness. And it does start by being kind to yourself.
It absolutely mm-hmm. does. Thank you very much. And we will hopefully keep in touch and speak again another time. All right. Take care. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next week with another incredible episode of Chatting to a Friend. In the meantime, please give us a follow on Instagram, Chatting to a Friend, for all the latest news. Bye-bye.